0: All right. Welcome to another episode of Omnishambles, the Daily Beast podcast. I feel really privileged today. I'm joined by Swin. Not privileged about that, but we're joined by Aaron Banco for the first time, national security reporter, the Daily Beast, and... I don't want to like blow up your spot a little bit, but over ten thousand Twitter followers. Congratulations, hey, what an accomplishment! Sam. <laughs> that's amazing.
1: Yeah, got a lot of followers last year. Yeah, week. that's
0: really it's doing really no part to you.
1: Thanks. <laughs>
2: I suggest people follow you all the time. What are you talking about? Erin is our fairly new kick-ass national security correspondent here in the Daily Beast Washington D.C. bureau. And when she came here, she had roughly fourteen Twitter followers. All
1: right, all, I had more All, than all that, of them but it was Iraqi and
2: well. Syrian nationals, <laughs> so, and now. <laughs> She's got upwards of three dozen, and it's great.
0: Still only Iraqi and Syrian nationals, but there's a lot of them out there, and they count on the following count. So, listen, I'm a little bit slow today. My kid decided to wake up. I'm kidding you not. 5.10 a.m. Friday, 5.20 a.m. Saturday, 5.45 a.m. Sunday, which was great. 4:45 a.m. today, so I've had four or five cups of coffee. Glamorous life of a uh, DC media
2: elite. (laughs) I might pass out. You read so much. I might
0: pass out while hosting this podcast. A lot of news happened this weekend. I think first and foremost, there are no slow weekends. First and foremost, we have a chief of staff opening. It's going to be the third White House chief of staff. Eventually, Trump announced this weekend that John Kelly, after being rumored to have been out the door for roughly the entirety of his tenure as chief of staff, he's leaving. So Trump announced this on Saturday. Let's roll the clip. John Kelly will be leaving. Reti- I don't know if I can say retiring, but he's a great guy. Uh, John Kelly will be leaving uh, at the end of the year. We'll be announcing who will be taking John's place. It might be on an interim basis. I'll be announcing that over the next day or All right. Two, but- he didn't know if he could say he's retiring. I don't really know what he meant. Is John Kelly going to go, like, out to bed and breakfast in Vermont? Is that what he's talking about? Or is this he's just out of the White House?
2: He's going to delve into sitcom writing <laughs> out west. Well, I went back and looked at my notes on this from at this point over a year ago. Just for the fun of it. And I realized that in the chronology of this, ever since John Kelly assumed the position of White House chief of staff post Reince Priebus getting fired by a Trump tweet, John Kelly had about a four week or so honeymoon period. The knives were out for him basically immediately after he eclipsed a month in his new position. Right. And also people were telling us on the inside who didn't necessarily want to shove a knife in John Kelly's spine that he was indeed unhappy with the job. And grappling with it in new, unexpected ways. Every chief of staff does. But listeners got to remember that John Kelly's ascension occurred at that point in 2017 where Charlottesville happened and Trump could not stop seemingly to overtly and publicly sympathize with Nazis. (laughs) And this was like a very interesting time to be at the helm of the West Wing operation. Right, right. But, you know,
0: John Kelly came in and everyone's like, ah, the man of discipline, a retired general. He will get the house in order. All will be well, and it seemed pretty quickly clear that that was not going to be the case. So, what complicated it for him?
2: Well, beyond all the people who were getting furious with the sort of new rules that he was imposing within the West Wing, such as cutting off certain degrees of access to the Oval Office and Trump, right? There was a lot of pettiness and political backbiting though, spawned by that, not just from people within the administration, but well, who also didn't like him? Uh, Corey Lewandowski, David Bossie, Anthony Scaramucci, Anthony Scaramucci, our boy. Steve Bannon evolved from sort of being his ally and liking right. him into somebody who was obviously kicked to the curb by him. Right, And it got to a point where not only these people who rightly or improperly claimed a degree of credit for Trump's victory in 2016, thinking, okay, who's this guy basically keeping me from my president? <laughs> but let's be real. People serving in the military are not at all immune to the same bureaucratic pettiness and knife fighting That goes on in a metaphorically sanguinary place like Donald Trump's West Wing. And John Kelly was completely open for that. Something that I've realized reporting on him that I think hasn't been written about him as much in so many mainstream publications is that he's a far more petty and vindictive person than all of these profiles about, oh, yes, the stately, high-regarded general who's going to come in here and basically come in with a stiff upper lip and fix things. There's more of a darkness to him than comes out in all these profiles.
0: I was trying to think, like, what is, like, the definitive John Kelly story, the thing that, like, summarizes his tenure at the White House? And for me, it was when he insulted the congresswoman. There was a soldier who was killed in Niger, I think, or something Mm. like that. And John Kelly basically was like, I used to respect women who like were quiet and stayed silent and knew their place. But, you know, this congresswoman or this mother has stepped out of bounds and criticized us unfairly or something like that. And to me, it was just like, this is a guy, to your point, who has a really sort of nasty side and is used to getting his way. And he wasn't really built for
2: a political system in which you have to make trade-offs. Right. And within Trump world, and I'm setting the bar through the floor here. He is a comparatively normal person. But when we're talking about the most substantively vindictive policies of the Trump era, John Kelly has been basically all for it. Yeah, he's been a little bit nicer and gentler and kinder on the issue of daca yeah true but beyond that on all the draconian stephen miller kirsten nielsen donald trump immigration crackdown john kelly is right there boosting it and sometimes he's thinking that deals on capitol hill on this very issue have not gone hard enough Trevor the issue of immigration.
1: So John Kelly has been threatening to quit for some time now. Can you detail any of the sort of interactions he had with people in the White House, the sort of blow ups we've been hearing about and how that impacted the state of the White House?
2: Before I get to that, something that sort of sticks out with me is a quintessential John Kelly moment, which doesn't necessarily show an element of palace intrigue, but it kind of shows why people felt this way about him in terms of oh, he's way less prepared or equipped for the job than his paper tiger reputation may depict. I think back in March of this year, he was in a gathering of senior White House officials, himself, and a bunch of reporters for an off-the-record session. The Daily Beast was not invited to this, but we were subsequently leaked details on it. And John Kelly was just, you know, shooting the shit with all these guys. And even though it was an off-the-record situation, you need to be careful about what you say in front of a room packed full of reporters – And this was shortly after Rex Tillerson, Trump's former secretary of state, was given the sack. And John Kelly, sort of laughing, (laughs) tells this room full of people, when I called Rex Tillerson while he was overseas on his Africa trip to inform him that he was going to be fired by Trump, he had a furiously bad stomach virus and was taking a massive shit (laughs) on the can as I called to inform him that he was getting fired.
0: Did we hesitate to publish that story briefly 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 it was Friday at like after
2: 6 p.m. And we were like what the hell did we just I guess I remember remember
0: we published a story and I was expecting like intense pushback from the White House. We got no pushback and then I remember I was in the green room I think like later that night maybe or maybe it was like a couple days later and one of the reporters who was there I can't name that person was like, you guys nailed it, and I was shocked when he said it. It was so inappropriate because he just basically (laughs) said, yeah, the former head of ExxonMobil, the secretary of state, the most important diplomat, was
2: pooping. While we were delivering him a very heavy (laughs) dose of Trumpian humiliation. (laughs) What does that say
1: about John Kelly and how on edge he was at that (laughs) time and how frustrated he was with everyone he was
2: working with? That and also (laughs) it speaks to... How even someone is buttoned up and disciplined with as much of a storied U.S. military career as that guy, when you put him in the context of, OK, you're going to command not just any West Wing operation, but Donald Trump's West Wing operation, you can fall into the same carelessness and hold spouts on, of idiocy hold on, hold on. with this. Maybe
0: it's not that you fall into it. Maybe you sort of adopt it, right? Like, he. maybe being around Trump makes you act a little bit mm. like Trump. Yeah, this I mean, of-
1: Kelly's been pictured in all sorts of photos when Trump is speaking with his face in his hands, shaking his head, <laughs> you know, like, clearly just... Can't believe what he's hearing in those
2: pages. And stages. yet here he well, who can? And the anecdote we were just talking about, it's all fun and games. It shows the callousness of this entire operation. But at the end of the day, it's not nearly as impactful as something which, to me at least, covering this guy, was the defining aspect of White House Chief of Staff. John Kelly, which was the Rob Porter scandal, right, which was largely driven and exacerbated by John Kelly himself and him, according to numerous people on the inside we talked to about it in real time, trying to foist a lie and in a weird way sort of a cover up of his role in wanting to keep Rob Porter on. Basically, summarization is that
0: he said that Porter had told him that the allegations of spousal abuse were not true. He put out a statement sort of lauding Porter's character. And then what? It kind of blew up, obviously, because there have been flags put up over this from and way prior to that.
2: Rob Porter was Trump's former staff secretary in the White House, obviously, right. before he had to get the hell out there in disgrace over yeah. not one, but two women coming forward on the record to accuse him of abuse yeah but john kelly then went back to people who worked with him at the senior ranks in the white house to basically tell them you know the truth is the whole time i was saying he had to go or something to that effect and then everybody would just look at him and be like what the hell are you doing here you're trying to get us to lie to cover your ass and all the remaining respect for them just kind of dropped away
0: now they got to replace the guy And the person who everyone assumed was going to replace the guy, Nick Ayers. Boy King,
2: Nick Ayers. Yeah,
0: yeah, basically. He was or is until some date in the future. Vice President Mike Pence's chief of staff, Nick Ayers, was supposed to be the Kelly replacement. And he turned Trump down. I mean, the idea is Trump wanted him to have a two-year commitment. He said no. And so now Trump has no chief of staff. So how does this get resolved?
2: Nick Ayers is sort of an interesting case subject because he's a relatively young guy. If he did assume the position as John Kelly's successor, you and I were talking about this in the office late last week where it was like, okay, do we really think that'll put a damper on any of the backstabbing and leaking and bureaucratic hellhole against Nick Edwards? No, because there's going to be a lot of people in there who don't like him would want to resign or maybe even perhaps resign if he got the job, and others who would spend a good chunk of the rest of their White House tenure actively trying to undermine him because of how much they don't like him and don't want to take orders from this guy who they think is a kid. But he personally, I think he really is this stereotypical DC-based political animal, ambitious guy, and he really does want a future in Republican politics, and he knows that Donald Trump won't be president for life. I think he is acutely aware of the fact that if he did take the job, his fate would be very similar to a Reince or a John Kelly. And um, the reputation that he's built up over the past several years would take a massive, perhaps fatal hit. Okay, but my question
0: still stands. Can anyone actually perform this job?
2: That's the million dollar question. And as you can see from the short list that has been emerging over the days, It's very clear that nobody who you'd expect to take this kind of hefty job is eager to take the position because they've seen what's happened to the last two guys. They're wondering, is it worth it? Do I want my career to take a massive implosion or a nosedive by the end of my stay And And the
0: last question for you on this is, what is the mood inside the West Wing as they are basically waiting to see if someone will become their boss? Because usually, just for historical standpoint, Obama went through a few chiefs of staff, right? But he always had someone... Stepping in when someone else was stepping out. There was never this sort of era of uncertainty here. But that's not the case now. We know someone's stepping out. We don't know who's stepping in.
2: I think a lot of people right now in typical wait and see mode, especially because they know it's not a done deal till it's a done deal, especially in Trump world. And at this point, it's just another edition of the apprentice colon leader of the free world edition, right? And some of these names that are getting thrown around include David Bossy, Mm -hmm. who, of course, was a 2016 senior Trump aide during the campaign, still talks to Trump quite often and sort acts as an informal outside advisor. He's very close to Corey Lewandowski, who, of course, is still very close to Trump and is still has a lot of cachet in the orbit, even though a lot of people don't like him. And both Bossy and Corey Lewandowski have yet another pro-Trump book that they've just released together and are on book tour for it. So the fact that this guy, Bossy, who's just one of the several names who've emerged on this shortlist over the last couple of days or so, is back in the mix. I happen to think he's still a long shot for the gig. But the fact that he's back in there reminds me of in late 2016, early 2017 during the Trump presidential transition. He was one of the guys thrown from the Trump train because even though Trump seems to like him and use him quite a bit now, he pissed off Trump to quite a degree by the end of the 2016 campaign and enough people didn't want him around that he didn't end up getting any of the administration or top tier GOP jobs that he wanted. So he was kind of relegated to becoming like a Fox News contributor and someone who seemed destined to be kept on the outside. And now, once again, because nobody wants this job, job that in so many other administrations, people would be lying up to kill each other for. <laughs> he's back in the mix as a well, potential chief of staff. There is. Again, one, I don't think it's going to happen.
0: There so. is one man who is tanned, rested and ready. Seb Gorka. Just waiting there.
2: Dan Bongino.
0: Oh, dual chiefs of staff. Diamond um, and Silk. Has Mm -hmm. that ever happened? I don't think so. Big and rich. (laughs) Right. The other thing that's happening, small potatoes, but it is sort of complicating this presidency in profound ways. On Friday, we had several filings, three in total, dealing with both Michael Cohen, the president's former lawyer. Charges brought against him and sentencing suggestion. And then a filing with the Paul Manafort case. It was explaining why prosecutors felt he had lied to them. So. Before we jump into the questions, we're going to ask Aaron to give us the 30,000-foot summarization of what we're looking at here.
1: Basically, what happened this week is that we got a sense of just how much Manafort had lied to Mueller and what he lied about, which we had all been waiting for. Those sort of lies focused on his work with this guy Kalimnik, the Ukrainian guy who he had done business with. And Manafort lied about how much he was paying people. And then we had Cohen. That filing was really interesting because-
0: yeah, I was going to say, if you're like into like the Robert Mueller porn, for lack of a better term, the Manafort filing was kind of dull, but the Cohen filing it was, was legit. It was intense. Yes. Yeah. Hardcore. I mean,
1: uh, the wording of it and just how much they were taking a hit to Cohen, it was a little wild. We were all reading through it like, oh man, oh man. Yeah. Did you see that?
0: So what were the main three takeaways or two? Yeah.
1: You know, coincide side had come out with a filing earlier in the week saying, you know, this is why we don't think he should be put in jail at all. You know, it had, I think, like 30 attachments from people <laughs> who were like, I've known Cohen since I was five. And, yeah. you know, here's why I think he's great. And basically what Mueller said was, we're not reading into that at all. You know, coincide side thinks that he can get no jail time. We think he should get a couple of years. So that was big. They focused a lot on his work with this guy Felix Sater, mm-hmm. and their discussions about a Trump Tower Moscow project and whatever happened with that. And of course, you know the SDNY filing we've got for Cohen got into his like finances and what he was doing with the taxi cab companies and Sure, like but that.
0: the big thing in the SDNY filing was that they said he broke campaign finance law at the direction of the president of the United States of America. Now he was then a candidate and the issue was concealing payments to Stormy Daniels over an alleged affair that she was going to publish the details of. They concealed payments. So they basically said the president of the United States directed someone to violate the law. And I thought this was going to be a huge, huge break and maybe turn some Republicans, make them a little nervous. But instead we got Rand Paul on Meet the Press saying this. Why do you think that the, the story keeps changing in and around the president? If all of these things are as I innocent because, as you've said, right. wh- why, why does he keep changing well, the
2: story? I think we're trying to make and find a crime. Mm-hmm. This has been my overall complaint about, the, uh, about having these special prosecutors, right. is that really they find a person and they look for a crime. Traditional justice in our country is someone steals something from the grocery store and you tr- have a crime, you try to find out who did it.
0: That clip is slightly edited just to abridge the senator's comments, but the gist is the same. He thinks that because a crime was discovered when in the process of looking into something else, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what he's saying there. And that's what a lot of Republicans have been saying, you know, over the past year or so.
0: Is that not crazy?
1: Totally crazy. And okay. I thought that point in the filing was going to be made a bigger deal as well that, you know, Mueller's basically saying Trump basically directed Cohen to make these payments. Yeah. But we sort of already knew that, right? I mean, a lot of reporting has indicated that.
0: Well, sure, but now you have the federal government right. saying this in right. a filing that right. the president, I mean, let's not downplay that. The president is being implicated in committing a crime.
1: Right, I shouldn't downplay that. <laughs> You're
0: like, oh, we knew that already, Oh, but news. But what
1: I find more interesting about the Cohen story is what we still don't know. And what is that? And that is how that Trump Tower Moscow project died. So and what do we know it, about
0: the project they were talking about? They want to build a big Trump Tower Yeah, in Moscow. You know,
1: so it's June 2016. And this is right around the first WikiLeaks dump. And Felix Sater is trying to get Cohen to come to Moscow. Let's, you know, get this going. And Cohen says two days before he's supposed to go to the St. Petersburg Economic Forum. He says, no, you know, I'm not going to go. And then Sater says to us in our reporting last week, he says, yeah, but I didn't really drop that deal or that idea of going forward with that project until after the primaries. So what happened in between the time that Cohen says, I'm not going to the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, and then the weeks before the deal actually dies? The question is, is there a cutout that went for Cohen to that forum and what was discussed in Moscow during that? And
0: forum? the bigger picture question is like the Trump organization and his top lawyer are trying to cut a deal with the Russians while he's running for president, all the while basically denying that they're dealing with the Russians This creates obvious problems because there is the issue of both leverage that the Russians would have on him, knowing that he is lying and they can prove it. But also there's the leverage in that the Russians know he wants to get a deal and they may, you know, hold things out for him. You know, they might not do the deal if he's not nice to them on the campaign trail. Now, this seems like a big deal to me.
2: Every Republican lawmaker or ally of this administration or White House who spent Practically an eternity talking about how the Clinton Foundation was a hotbed of foreign influence ready to have leverage over and manipulate incoming president Hillary Clinton. And, you know, they weren't wrong to say that. They were saying it in bad faith, but the criticism was necessary. Nothing but an orchestra of crickets. coming Well, from not totally
0: crickets. We have Kevin McCarthy this morning saying this about the matter. When he says 14 Russians had contact with Trump campaign officials in 2016, uh, is that an issue or is that just how Washington works? If you're in an international city, uh, people interact with a lot of individuals. I don't know what he's referring to here, but did they affect the election or the outcome? Every investigation in the House and Senate says they did not. So he's an international businessman. He talks with people about business.
1: But this is where the sanctions conversation comes into play. right? So what we know is that, you know, several people on the campaign and in the transition period talked to Russians about the possibility of rolling back sanctions. Right. And this is what we've all been pointing to as did that leverage come in the form of asking for sanctions to be dropped? Russia really wasn't hurting all that much with the sanctions. They were sort of like a thorn in their side, but they had sort of insulated their economy in a way that they could handle these sort of sanctions that have been going since 2014. But if the sanctions had been dropped, then this project would have gone forward you know, pretty easily right. and they wouldn't have to worry about all the people that were just sort of spooked by doing business with Russia, even though technically it's still sort of legal to do that. Right. And I think we haven't really seen the full extent of those conversations throughout the campaign and, you know, even into the administration. And I think the sanctions conversation is going to be a really big one that we see rolling out in December. So, and yeah, I was
0: going to say, do you think putting your reporter hat on here? Do you think this is where Mueller is focused now, is like looking at what the quid pro quo is around sanctions?
1: Yeah, and I don't think we've seen that drop yet. I think there's still a lot coming on that side of things. I think we still have the whole Middle East side of the Mueller probe, the UAE, Saudi, the Seychelles, and the sort of whole probe into foreign influence as it pertains to not only possibly helping Trump win the election, but also how it affected policy in the first days of the administration and how sanctions folded into that. And I think that's going to be a huge focus for Mueller coming up here when the new Congress comes in.
0: So Paul Manafort is obviously a major player in this. He had initially agreed to cooperate with Robert Mueller's team, then apparently lied to them. The cooperation deal was tossed. It looked to the untrained eye that he was holding out for a pardon.
1: Yeah, it looks sort of like he's been angling for a pardon for some time now from some of the filings we've seen coming out from Mueller. Now,
0: it's never been overtly asked. That'd be crazy. But it's kind of there in the ether. Marco Rubio was pressed on this this Sunday. And this is what he said.
2: I think it would be a terrible mistake if he did that. I I do. I believe it would be a terrible mistake. You know, pardons should be used judiciously. Uh, They're used for cases uh, with extraordinary circumstances. And I just, I haven't heard that the White House is thinking about doing it. I know he hasn't ruled it out, but I haven't heard anyone say we're thinking about doing it. I I would advise strongly against it. It would be a terrible mistake. I, I, I would not be supportive of it. I would be critical of it. I don't believe that any pardons should be used with relation to these particular cases. Um, frankly, it, not only does it not sp- pass the smell test, I, I just I think it undermines the, the reason why we have presidential pardons in the first place. And I think, in fact, if something like that were to happen, it could trigger a debate about whether the, the pardon uh, powers should be amended, uh, given these circumstances.
0: This is what gets me about this clip. Rubio is being critical, obviously, here. But like, if you step back and lightly,
2: you, yeah, it's like like a feather duster <laughs> yeah, level. Exactly. Of it's like, criticism. if you
0: pardon this guy, I'd be very critical of it. Start a debate about the presidential pardon powers.
2: Yeah, she pushes up glasses comically, <laughs> like a like it's a like, high schooler. It's like
0: the idea of pardoning Manafort to the sober-minded observer would be. Potentially an impeachable offense. It would be an obstruction of justice, or it could be construed that way at a minimum. It could
1: definitely be construed.
0: Well, that way. let's
2: flash back a few decades to the Nixon era.
0: There was audio recordings of Nixon talking to top aides about the possibility of pardoning them, because he, according to the president at the time, they had gone to the math for him and they deserved to be. And the aides at the time were like, you cannot talk like that. You can't say things like that. That could be used against you in the court of law as evidence of obstruction of justice. And the truth is, Nixon didn't do it. And that's probably why Trump hasn't done it either. I don't know. I don't have any reporting on it, but I'm assuming his lawyers have all said this would be problematic, very much so legally and politically. For Rubio, it would trigger a conversation.
1: Well, what's interesting about the Manafort filing that we saw this week in regard to this possible pardon that might be coming from Trump is that we know that he lied about his interactions with people in the administration after he left and the extent of the conversations he had during his time on the campaign. And so we know this is something that Manafort has lied about to the special counsel's office about his interactions after he left. We still don't know the full extent of what those interactions were. All
0: right. To close this conversation, then we'll go to my favorite segment. How are these bleeding together? So you have disorder internally at the White House over staffing stuff. Then you have this external calamity building up over the Mueller investigation. How are they melding? Are they melding? Are people freaking out at all in the administration? Or is it just sort of like this is the life under Donald Trump?
2: Well, it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I mean, are people freaking out about this? Well, people in this particular administration are always freaking out. But at the same time, a lot of them, especially at the top ranks, have a pretty severe calluses towards all of this stuff. I mean, it's sort of baked into the equation that if you're working in there, you're going to be dealing with bombs going off every week.
0: So they basically have learned to live... In chaos.
2: Yeah, and until something big comes out, like we have it proven that Donald Trump did know about the infamous 2016 Trump Tower meeting, until something like that, they're not hitting the DEFCON, what is it, three or two? Say four? John Kelly would know the answer sure. to this question.
1: <laughs> yeah, until we see the unredacted portions of the Mueller investigation in some of these filings, we're not going to really okay, maybe, see the full route.
0: Maybe I'll take a different opinion than you two. I think the reason that Nick Ayers turned down This job is because he does see the writing on the wall. I think the reason that Donald
2: Trump is having that is part of what I said.
0: All right, yeah, calm, eh, calm. All right, fine. Let's go to the final segment. It's my favorite segment. I'm going to read you a headline, and then you guys have to decide if it's real or if it's the onion, okay? Okay. The onion or not the onion. Gina Haspel briefs senators on Saudi's quote, shockingly uninspired Khashoggi interrogation. Onion. Onion. It's the onion. Congratulations.
2: Really. Really good.
1: I think onion. I saw all the Gina Haspel <laughs> headlines I, I, that day. <laughs> I'm
2: a big fan of that. Okay.
0: Onion or not onion. Moscow mulls naming a street, quote, North American dead end, end quote. Real. Not the onion. God, you guys are good today. Not onion or onion. Woman comes clean for stealing soap 18 years later.
2: Real. Real, but it's not a woman. It's Dave Weigel.
0: <laughs> it's real, but it is not Dave Weigel. <laughs> all right, last one. Wisconsin legislature weakens incoming Democratic governor by restricting his access to food, water, and shelter.
2: Onion. (laughs) Read it for me one more time. Although it could be real.
0: (laughs) Wisconsin legislature weakens incoming Democratic governor by restricting his access to food, water, and shelter.
2: Even if this is the onion, I'm going to go with real. It's the onions. It's, it's also real.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, that will conclude our latest episode of Omni Shambles. You can follow Erin on Twitter. She desperately needs it. What is your handle?
1: Seriously? At Erin Banco.
0: At Erin Banco. <laughs> Come follow me. Follow her. It's the best handle on Twitter. <laughs> well, the second best handle on Twitter after at Sam Stein. Definitely better than Swin's.
2: At Swin24. If you like hot national security scoops in the Trump era and also someone who tweets about rewatching The Office, the American version, in its entirety. It's a must I'm follow. Your girl. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron's your must follow.
0: All right. Thanks again for listening, guys. You can find us at TheDailyBeast.com, obviously, Apple Podcast, Google Play, and wherever else you consume your podcasts. Please subscribe and please rate our shows. We only take five-star ratings, so don't even try to do a four-star rating. Only five.